Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you, as your deeds shall return on your own head. May the Lord be glorified by the preaching of his word. Uh, you may all be seated this morning as we come to God's Word, and as we come, let's pray. Our God and our Father, as we hear the reading of these words from Your Holy Word, we remember that these words were breathed out by You and not just proclaimed by the imaginations or speculations of human men. And so, Father, we're sobered, frankly, by what we read here. But we know that this is your revelation to us of yourself, of your holy character and nature. And so we pray that you would give us understanding this morning. Holy Spirit, be with us as we come to the Word of God today and give us illumination in our minds and in our hearts. And may our understanding of the nature of the Most High God be increased today. May our worship of you, Father, be enhanced today by what we learn from Your Word. May You use Your Word as the double-edged sword that it is, as, a, as the book of Hebrews says, to penetrate into the deepest recesses of our beings and expose anything in there, Father, that, that needs to go, that needs to be excised as You continue the process of conforming us to the image of Your glorious Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, use Your Word to give us a reverent adoration of You and a love for You. And Father, an assurance that by Your grace we have been saved. 
And so, Father, may the words of my mouth this morning and the meditations of our hearts today be pleasing in your sight as we come to your holy word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome back today to the book of Obadiah. We started this book last week. For those of you who are visiting today, you missed kind of the overview of this little book of Scripture last week, and we're continuing on today. After this week, we're going to spend one more week together in this little book of prophecy so that we can take in the three main messages that I see God proclaiming here through His prophet, all of which are profitable to us because this is God's living and active word to us and all of it is profitable, Paul says. And I believe that all of it will encourage us as we continue to walk by faith and not by sight in this world and run the race that God has set before us with endurance. And God's word always gives us that endurance. So last week, just to review for a second, we we kind of surveyed the book It's just one chapter, it's only 21 verses long, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament scriptures, and as we kind of flew over the top together of the book of Obadiah, we zeroed in on the first of the three main messages that God reveals here. And that first message, the first thing we can glean together for our profit and our encouragement from the book of Obadiah, as we saw last week, is this great and awesome truth that over all of the apparent chaos and all of the wickedness and all of the evil that sometimes seems to be reigning and prevailing in this world all around us, over all of the sorrows, over all of the sufferings, over all of the troubles that we face in this world, which which seem to have no end, and to which sometimes it seems to us there are no solutions to be found, Over it all, in fact, God reveals, indeed, God reveals, He reigns in sovereign faithfulness and goodness, working all things together for His own glory and for our own good so that we can know that even when things don't feel good in our lives, He is bringing good. Even from the evil and the wickedness in the world, He is bringing good to our lives and ultimately working out all of His eternal purposes. This week, with with that first truth kind of as the firm foundation underneath our feet, that God is sovereign and God is good no matter what, this week we can stand on that foundation and hear and understand and embrace this second main message from the book of Obadiah, which is that not only... Not only does God reign in sovereign goodness over every aspect of this world and our lives, He is also the holy and righteous judge of the whole world. So that when we look out there in the world and we see the chaos, remember last week I said it's kind of like a, an adult walking into an unsupervised classroom full of fourth graders and saying, who's in charge here? And sometimes that's how we feel when we look at the world. Who's in charge? Well, God's in charge here. This week, maybe the adult walks into the classroom and says, who's going to clean up this mess? This week, we can be assured that God will clean up this mess. Because not only is He sovereign, He's the righteous judge of the whole world, and He will let no evil stand. He will deal with it all. And that's really, really good news. A lot of people are uncomfortable, though, with this 
subject, right? This theme of God's judgment and the justice that He enacts against wickedness and that He will ultimately enact against wickedness in the whole world. And, and so a lot of people, because that's not fun, that's not happy, uh, it, it tends to make us feel uncomfortable and ill at ease. Some people will try to avoid any kind of real focus on this subject. And some people are so uncomfortable with the Bible's teaching about God's justice and judgment that they don't take it seriously. And then other people are, are, are so absolutely opposed to it that they'll deny that altogether. They'll reject the reality out of hand that God not only reigns sovereignly over all creation, but that He is also the holy and righteous judge of the whole earth. They don't want to worship a God like that. They only want Him to be love and mercy and kindness. And so they reject what He reveals about Himself in His Word, that He is also holy and mighty and just. And that shouldn't surprise us that people will dismiss that truth, reject that truth, because all the way back in the very beginning of the Bible, in the very beginning of the book of Genesis, that same truth of God's holy, righteous judgment against sin and disobedience, that same truth was denied and rejected by Satan. Even before Adam and Eve actually committed the first sin, Satan was denying the justice and judgment of God. You remember? There was one rule in the garden, and one rule only. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat of any other tree, just not this one. And if they did, what? What would be the just penalty? You shall surely die, right? Genesis 3, verse 17. And they weren't going to die if they ate of the fruit of that tree because somehow the fruit of that tree was poisonous or toxic to them, right? It was because God commanded it. And the wages of sin, the wages of disobeying the command of God is death. That's what His justice demands and requires as the infinitely holy and sovereign Lord of creation who He is. Any transgression is a transgression against the infinite. And so there is no measure to the punishment that is too great. That's how God's justice works. And the first one to deny that was the serpent in the garden, right? First, he twisted God's word. God had said that they couldn't eat from only this one tree. They could eat from any other tree in the garden. They only had to stay away from the fruit of this one tree. But Satan came to Eve and said, Did God actually say, listen, did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Well, that's not what God had said, right? And Satan knew that, didn't he? Of course he did. And Eve corrected him, right? She did. She said, no, no, God said we may eat of the fruit of all of the trees of the garden, but he said you shall not eat of the fruit of this one tree in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So why did Satan phrase the question the way that he did? Why did Satan ask, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Well, the reason is because he was crafty. Genesis 3.1 says, more crafty than any other creature that God had made. 
And by asking the question that he asked in the way that he did, even though he knew that's not what God had actually said, what he was doing was planting this idea in Eve's head that just maybe God wasn't actually very reasonable or fair or just for requiring what he requires. Maybe he couldn't be trusted. And so, having planted that little seed of doubt, as soon as Eve told him what God actually said, that they could eat of all the other trees, just not this one, and that if they did, they would surely die, now Satan immediately replies, you're not going to die. If you eat of that tree, you shall not surely die. Denying that what God said would actually happen. Denying and rejecting God's Justice in requiring that penalty of death for any sin, even that one. That wouldn't be fair, Satan was saying. That wouldn't be just. That wouldn't be right. That wouldn't be like God to do. From the very beginning, it's been Satan's strategy to deceive people into denying the justice and the judgment of God against human sin and unrighteousness. And I've said this a bunch of times before, it's not like people in this world who deny that, it's not like they're denying the idea of justice altogether, right? There are no true anarchists in this world who don't want any kind of justice. They just want their kind of justice. Everyone has their own ideas about what is right and wrong in this world. And everybody has an idea about what ought to be done about things that they perceive and define as wrong, right? Any, if you've got an anarchist living next door to you and somebody vandalizes their property, they're going to want something done about it, aren't they? Who's going to pay for this mess, right? Somebody ditched a camper. <laughs> Did you see it on our property? They just dumped it there. Old, disgusting-looking thing. Who's going to pay to have it removed? Who's going who's gonna, to... What, what justice should there be for somebody who just put something on your property and then if we have to pay to have it removed... How does that get compensated for? See, there's an idea of justice that everybody has in this world, right? If you vandalize somebody's property, they're going to want something done about it. They're going to want that wrong made right somehow. Almost certainly, anyone in this world has that kind of, compens- or that kind of idea of compensation in their mind that, that, that something needs to be done to make the wrong right. That's what justice is. Everyone wants that. The issue is that not everyone agrees what the foundation of justice ought to be. Who decides what's right and wrong ultimately? Who decides what gets done about the wrong ultimately? Who decides the the degrees of of seriousness of various wrongs and, and what kinds of punishments should fit those various crimes? Who decides that ultimately? And obviously if... If the answer is, well, everybody gets to decide for themselves what constitutes right and wrong and what kinds of justice they get to employ according to however they feel about it when things are done that they decide are wrong, if that's the way it works, then really chaos will reign in this world, will it not? There's got to be some objective standard that applies to all of us, right? Who gets to decide that standard? In order to avoid the obvious conflicts of interest that always exist when people make up their own rules and standards because they tend to benefit self more than others, 
the objective standard of what's right and wrong and what gets done about it ought to come from outside of all of us, right? That's the only way that any kind of meaningful justice can work in this world. And every kind of conflict that there is in this world, whether it's between individual people or, or entire nations that go to war against each other, every kind of conflict comes because two different parties have adopted two different definitions of right and wrong and justice. And they're going to fight about it. And that's what happens in this world full of sin when people and societies and nations deny that the eternal God who made the world is also the judge of the whole world and he decides and not us. So the bottom line is everyone wants justice, even the people who deny God's justice. It's not that they don't want any justice, it's that they don't want God to be the judge. They don't want him defining what is right and wrong for them. And they certainly don't want him deciding the consequences of wrong for them. And so the whole history of the human race in this world is, is, a, is, a, is a testament to how it goes when we deny the justice of God as the objective standard that ought to apply to everyone. And when we take it upon ourselves to define right and wrong and justice for ourselves, human sinfulness always corrupts values and justice in this world. And whenever people or princes or kings or governments deny God's justice, they deceive themselves into thinking that they can do what they want because ultimately there's no one that they have to give account to. Thomas Keneally, who wrote the book that the movie Schindler's List is based on. Have you seen that movie? In the book, Thomas Keneally reflects on the terrifying possibility that there might not be any accountability or justice for the people who did what they did in the Holocaust. And in the book, I don't know if you've seen the movie or not, but if you've seen the movie, you remember it's all in black and white. And there's one character in the movie that's in color. And it's a little girl that appears throughout the movie wearing a red cloak or dress. In the book, Thomas Keneally talks about this little girl dressed in red. And tells us that she, as a toddler, had to watch her mother and her brother be murdered by the Nazi soldiers. And they let her watch. And Keneally says this, he says, they permitted witnesses to their atrocities, such as this little red-dressed toddler, because they believed that all of the witnesses would perish too. See, they did whatever they wanted because their distortion of God's truth, their dismissal of God's righteousness, their denial of His justice was so complete, so thorough, that they actually believed they would never have to give an account for what they did in their lives. No one would live to accuse them. They would see to it. And so God would never judge them, they thought. Now here's the question for us today as we come to the book of Obadiah, which talks about justice divine justice. The question is, does anyone want to live in a world like that? Where people like the Nazis get to do whatever they want and no one will hold them to account. I know judgment 
and the idea of God's judgment is uncomfortable, but do you want to live in a world without it? You don't. You don't. You don't want to live in the world where there is no ultimate judge and no ultimate justice. In reality, it is terribly bad news if God is not the judge of the whole world. So, there's actually great encouragement to be found in in a book like Obadiah and in places all throughout the Bible where we're assured that even in a world where, where all kinds of injustice and wickedness is perpetrated all the time, We don't live in a world that is without an ultimate standard of justice and an ultimately righteous judge. Obadiah insists that God is just and that he always acts in perfect justice. Here he promises, God does, that he's going to impose justice on the Edomites. We learned about them last week. He cares about the wrong and the wicked things that they have done, and he will set it right. So here's the thing to keep our focus on today as we look at these verses together and as we talk about the justice of God. Remember the context, historically, that we learned about last week that Obadiah was, was, was writing in. The Babylonian Empire had come, and they had laid waste to Judah and Jerusalem which was a massive injustice, which was something that caused massive suffering over all of which God ruled in sovereign goodness and was working out His purpose, as we learned last week. Here now, Obadiah is proclaiming, and God through him, that he is going to pour out judgment against the Edomites for the part that they played in aiding and abetting the enemy and for standing by while Judah suffered, and and rejoicing instead of having compassion as Jerusalem was being destroyed. So, if you're a person in Jerusalem, in Judah in those days, and you're hearing this message from Obadiah, you'd be delighted, wouldn't you? To hear that God was going to give the Edomites what they deserved. But see, the point is this. Obadiah isn't just speaking to Edom. The, the message concerns Judah also, and ultimately it concerns all human beings, us included, who have fallen short of God's glory. Keep in mind with me here today that the sins of Edom can sometimes, oftentimes, be our sins too. The, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth and reminded them of some of the sins and the failures of the people of the Old Testament, and lest they say, oh yeah, sanctimoniously, right, self-righteously, oh, those terrible people in the Old Testament, good thing we're not like that, unless lest they had that kind of prideful perspective, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, now these things that happened to them happened as an example for you. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands righteous take heed, lest he fall. So, what does Obadiah teach us about the justice and the judgments of God that can encourage us and that can strengthen us and and can help us keep walking by faith and running the race with endurance and growing and holiness in our lives? I see three things. First, 
In verses 2 through 4, Obadiah teaches us that in God's justice, he humbles the proud. Second, in verses 5 through 9, he teaches us that in God's justice, God destroys the wicked and all of his enemies. And third, in verses 10 through 15, in God's justice, he upholds his truth. And I'll explain what that means later, but first, let's start at the top. Verses 2 through 4. In His justice, God humbles the proud. We're familiar with the words of Proverbs 16.8 and the divine wisdom that's revealed there where God says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit, a proud spirit, goes before a fall. Pride comes before a fall. Didn't everybody's mom teach him that? And here, God is proclaiming that it's not just some natural law of the universe that pride goes before destruction. The reason that's true is because God, the sovereign Lord and the judge of the whole world, is opposed to human pride and devoted to bringing down the proud in His justice. So at the heart of Edom's great national failure lay their great sinful pride that God was opposed to. Verse 2, Behold, the sovereign God says to them, Behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. This is what God's going to do to the Edomites because of their pride. Why? Because the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock and up in your lofty dwellings and say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The Old Testament scholar George Adams says, Edom had a a complacent form of satisfaction because they lived in a remarkable geographical isolation and self-sufficiency. They had large stores of wealth. They had a reputation for worldly wisdom. And all of that meant that they felt no need for the divine. That's the key. Because of where they lived, remember they carved themselves those magnificent cities, literally. Treasuries, storehouses, palaces, homes into the clefts of the rock. Hard to get to them. Easy to defend. Hard to attack. And they had lots of wealth and they had lots of wisdom. They thought they were invulnerable and they thought they had no need of God. So the Edomites lived in this strip of land. It's about 100 miles long, stretching between the uh, southern tip of the Dead Sea to the Gulf of Aqaba, which, which leads to the Red Sea. And it's this rugged, kind of mountainous area with mountain peaks rising up 3,000 or 4,000 feet tall. Very difficult to attack. Very easy to defend if you live there. So they felt invulnerable. It was much easier for them, see, to trust in the security of the mountains around them than to put their confidence in the sovereign God who made the mountains. But they were deceived by this pride in their own hearts. They thought that they could do whatever they wanted because no one could do anything about it. But they were wrong. They were dead wrong. 
So it's easy, see, for us. It's easy as humans to foster a, a, a sort of false sense of security based on the material stuff that we have. But in reality, everything material is really, really fragile, isn't it? From our natural resources to our economy to the houses we live in to the bodies that we live in. It's fragile. History has proven over and over and over that nothing in this world lasts. That only the sovereign Lord Himself is worthy of our eternal trust and hope. Edom also prided themselves in their in their smarts, in their intellect, in their wisdom. They had wise men of great understanding, verse 8 says. But human wisdom can't save us either, right? Any more than natural resources can. And again, history is packed full of proof. There's a lot of nations throughout history that have enjoyed their, their day in the sun. Times of great success, times of great affluence because of the wisdom that they employed only to become arrogant before God and do things their own way and in violation of His will and then be humbled by Him and brought down. The Egyptians, powerful, wise, wealthy, boom, crushed under the waters of the Red Sea by the hand of God in the book of Exodus. And they weren't totally destroyed that day. There were future dynasties of of the pharaohs in Egypt, but not forever, right? Percy Shelley's famous poem, Ozymandias. You read that poem, it reflects on this terrible irony of the great statue that a mighty pharaoh built to himself, sticking way up out of the desert as a testament to his sovereignty and his greatness and the kingdom that he believed would rule over the earth forever. But now there's just a pair of legs sticking up out of the stand, the rest of the statue's fallen over and shattered into pieces and and the sands covered everything and that kingdom is gone. As a testament to how the proud fall. Or the mighty Babylonians defeated in a single night when God weighed them and found them wanting in the book of Daniel. Or, or proud Nebuchadnezzar himself, right? The king of the Babylonians who waved his hands around and said, look at all that I have accomplished. He felt like he had no need of God. Until he found himself one day eating grass like a beast of the field for seven years because God brought him down. Same about the Persians, same thing about the Greeks, the Romans. Gone. In modern times, Hitler's Germany, the Third Reich, that he arrogantly imagined would be a thousand-year kingdom. Gone. Mussolini's fascist regime in Italy. Gone. Stalin's communist Soviet Union. Shattered. Pol Pot's Cambodia. Gone. What, what's happening in China right now? What's happening in Russia right now? What will happen in America if we continue to trust in our own resources and worldly wisdom and shake our fists at the Almighty? And define right and wrong our way in contrast to His way. Because we feel no need of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, as God was preparing to lead the people into the promised land, He told them how wonderful it was going to be. 
full of abundant resources and blessings, right? Streams and pools of fresh water everywhere, abundant wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates and olive oil and honey dripping from the honeycomb, stones that were like iron that you could build impregnable walls out of, copper that you could dig out of the ground, you would, you'd, they'd, they'd be at lack for nothing. And Moses knew because he understood the prideful, sinful human heart, Moses knew that he had to warn the people. So he said to them, as they're contemplating all this great blessing that they're going to have in this world, he said to them, you shall eat and be full, and then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Don't forget to praise God for the gifts. But, he said, take care lest you forget the Lord your God and fail to keep His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I commanded you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when you've got it all made, when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, be careful lest your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God pretty easy to do when we've got it made in the shade what do i need him for right it can be awfully easy in the pride of sinful human hearts to forget the goodness and the kindness of god who made this whole world in the first place and created it and gave us life and gives us every good thing that we have and enjoy in this life instead of thanking him and praising him and serving him and honoring him with our lives it can be very easy to just take all the gifts And forget to give honor to the giver. So C.S. Lewis calls pride, especially in its full expression in the human heart, he calls pride the complete anti-God state of mind. It's this ungrateful attitude that, that if it goes unchecked, will more and more say, I have no need of you to God. It's this attitude that goes about doing things our own way and for the sake of our own desires instead of for the sake of His glory. And God's opposed to that proud. He's opposed to that pride and He's opposed to the proud. And He will humble and bring the proud down. And that's good news. Because ultimately the wickedness of the arrogant will not prosper. See? God's righteousness and God's justice will. So secondly then, Verses 5 through 9, in His justice, God not only humbles the proud, He destroys the wickedness and the wicked that comes from the pride. All wickedness ultimately comes from human pride. In verse 5, Obadiah is imagining uh, a situation by way of illustration where a group of thieves break into a house in the middle of the night and steal a bunch of stuff. That'd be bad, right? But it wouldn't be the end of the world normally if you came out in the morning and, and all your furniture was gone and your TV and your stereo were gone, that would be bad, but you'd be thankful to be alive still and to have your house still and to have money in the bank still, right? They didn't take it all. That's what he's saying in verse 5 by way of illustration. Or he uses another illustration when grape pickers, harvesters go down the vine and they pick all the grapes they typically don't just strip the vines clean of every last grape because because they're going quickly they're trying to be efficient they work fast 
And so there's almost always some gleanings left behind. And the point that God's making there, see, is this. It's that that's typically how things go in this world. Thieves typically don't take everything. Grape harvesters usually leave some gleanings. But by contrast, God is saying to Edom, when his judgments come against Edom, there won't be anything left. There's a massive disaster awaiting you, God says, to these proud people who think they have no need of Him. No one should imagine that when the eternal, almighty, infinitely holy God judges sin, that He's going to leave some of it. That He's going to leave any stone unturned. That He's going to leave any scrap of wickedness untouched. Anything short of absolute, perfect, undiluted purity cannot coexist with the one who is holy, 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 and absolute perfection. All the sin has to go. We studied Revelation chapter 19 several weeks ago together. Talked about that coming final day of judgment when Jesus will return and He will expose the whole universe to the purifying fire of the holy judgment of God. And all of it will be incinerated, as Peter says, dissolved, disintegrated, because it's all corrupted, it's all impure, and, and like leaven, sin and, and unrighteousness and the curse have, have infiltrated every part of it. And then after it's been disintegrated by the holy judgment of God, it will be all, all brought back together and made gloriously and perfectly new. Paul talks about that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says there's coming a day when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord. And they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. The point is this. Divine justice means that God destroys all of His enemies and all evil, and all wickedness, and he destroys it all completely. That's what he's proclaiming to Edom. That's what happened to Edom. And it's what's going to happen to all wickedness and evil and sin in this whole world when Christ returns, which is a hard thing to contemplate and ought to fill us with great sobriety. But it's also a good thing, right? Praise be to God that all wickedness is going to be destroyed. Praise be to God that true, perfect righteousness and pure justice will reign forever. God sees all evil. God cares about all wickedness. And God will destroy it all. In verses 6-9, through Obadiah spells out the, the kinds of wickedness, the kinds of idolatry that God's Judgment is going to destroy. And he's got three things in focus. He's got materialism in focus in verse 6. He's got worldly wisdom in focus in verse 8. And he's got human strength in focus in verse 9. And in and of themselves, those aren't bad things. Right? Being rich isn't evil. Being smart isn't wicked. Being strong isn't the problem. The problem, again, is being more confident, more satisfied, more content, more dependent on any of these kinds of things than on God Himself, who is the giver of these things. 
So the real focus here is on God's judgment of human idolatry. When we take something that God has made and make it more important to us than the maker. When we worship the creation instead of the creator. That's what idols are. They're just things that we put in God's place. They're things that we think we need more than we need God. They're things that we want more than we want God. They're things that we depend on more, love more, trust in more, hope in more than we do God. And in His justice, He will make all of that wrong right. He'll crush whatever idols there are. For Edom, it was their materialism, their dependence on wealth and stuff more than the God of creation. It was their wisdom. It was being right in their own eyes. It was leaning on their own understanding, placing their wisdom above God's wisdom as the guiding principle of their lives. It was their strength, their military might. Who needs God when we've got all this military power, all this human capability? They depended on self more than instead of the sovereign God, the Most High Lord of the universe. Now Jesus warns us about all this in the New Testament too, doesn't he? All over the place. In Luke chapter 12, for instance, he he talks about the person whose goal in life is just to multiply his wealth. That's his greatest concern. I've got money, but I, I need to have more money. And once I have more money, I need to have more money. And Jesus said, look, your life does not consist in the abundance of wealth or possessions. That's not what it's about. And then he tells this parable, which frankly is scary. He says this, the the land of a rich man produced plentifully, abundantly. And this man thought to himself, well, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store all my crops. He's got plenty, but what am I going to do? There's more than will fit in my barn. So I'll tear down my barn and I'll build a bigger one. Then I'll store all my grain and goods in there, and I will say to my soul, soul, I'll say to my soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, so relax and eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, you're a fool, for this night your soul is required of you, because you see, his soul was dependent on the stuff and not on God. That's what Edom was doing. They were laying up their treasures in this world. They had abundant wealth and resources and their security and their hope and their confidence was in the stuff and not in the sovereign God. They were rich in this world, but they were impoverished spiritually. And there is the lesson and the message. Material stuff can easily become a substitute for God in our hearts. And we can easily rely on the gifts more than the giver. But we can't take any of the stuff with us when we die, can we? None of it's going to do us any good at all when we come to face the judge of the whole earth. Same goes for the wisdom of this world. Edom was known for their shrewdness in the way that they did things in this world. But their shrewdness, their wisdom wasn't based on the word of God. It wasn't based on the wisdom of God. God's word is abundantly clear that his wisdom is not just somewhat different from the world's wisdom. They're, they're opposed to each other, antithetically. James actually says in James chapter 3 that the wisdom of this world is earthly and unspiritual and demonic because it's the result of Satan's rebellion against God 
And it is Satan's deceptive agenda to lead people away from God's truth and God's wisdom and into a way that seems right to them, but the end of that way is death, destruction. Proverbs 14 and 16 say that. But by contrast, the wisdom of God, James says, is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Edom was the opposite of that. Edom was operating according to the wisdom of this world, which was under the sway of Satan and leads to destruction. And that wisdom invites the judgment of God. So Obadiah is revealing that Edom's worldly wisdom and Edom itself were were destroyed by the justice of God. And the New Testament again reveals that there is coming a day when Christ is going to return and destroy all of this world's earthly and unspiritual and demonic wisdom. That wisdom that suppresses the truth of God and unrighteousness. That wisdom that calls good evil and evil good. That wisdom that is suffusing the very land that we live in here. That wisdom that insists that women should have the undisturbed freedom to kill their own unborn children. And at the same time, this worldly wisdom insists that men can become pregnant. God hates this wisdom. And He's going to destroy it. We laugh, we shake our heads, we tear out our hair because the wisdom of this world is so obviously foolish. It's demonic, like James says. It's destructive, like Proverbs says. So again, praise God that in His great justice, the satanic destructive wisdom of this world will be destroyed by the justice of God. You don't have to worry. The same is true for the idol of worldly strength. Verse 9. Your mighty men shall be dismayed. Edom was more confident. They felt more safe because of their mighty men, their warriors, than they felt because of the Almighty God. Edom's hope was more anchored to their military power. Edom's hope was more anchored to their political alliances with the Assyrians or the Babylonians than to God who reigns over the whole earth and is the judge of the whole earth. But God swept away those mighty nations, didn't He? The ones that were far more mighty even than Edom. The Assyrians, gone. The Babylonians, way more powerful than Edom, gone. Wiped away from the face of the earth. Edom had allied themselves with the strongest and most powerful nations in the world. They had had trusted in their own strength and in those alliances more than in the Almighty God. And in opposition to that pride, God tore them all down. And He didn't just do it because they had wealth or had wisdom or had strength. He did it because in their pride they trusted in and hoped in and depended on all of that more than Him and instead of Him. So, in His justice, God will humble and tear down the proud who exalt themselves above Him, and He will destroy every wicked idol and false god. He will tear down every enemy. And that brings us, lastly here today, to this truth that Obadiah reveals here. 
In His justice, God upholds His truth. In His justice, God upholds His truth. Here's, here's what I mean by that as we look at the closing verses here. Obadiah, verses 10 through 15. Obadiah wants us to be clear about the fact that the eternal, almighty, holy God never does this. He never executes His divine justice just arbitrarily. Sometimes like human beings do. Why did you do that? Why did you go so far in your reaction to that? I just I lost control of my senses and I got angry and I saw red and I just exploded. That's what we do. It's not what God does ever. God never enacts or executes His justice arbitrarily, unfairly, rashly, impulsively, unreasonably. Ever. There are good reasons. There is truth and reality behind why God determines to do what He does. Why He determined to tear Edom down and all their pride and idolatry and wickedness and rebellion against Him. And He says in verse 10, It's because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Now, the wisdom of the world might say, well, Jacob had it coming because you remember all that garbage that he did against Esau? Like we saw last week. But see, the wisdom of God insists that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And, and, and to us, wisdom dictates peace and forgiveness and mercy. The wisdom of God is that He's all-knowing and He's sovereign and He's just and we're not, so we should leave all that to Him. The wisdom of God, James, remember, says, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy. And Edom had none of that. They chose willingly. They chose persistently for centuries. They chose the demonic, destructive wisdom of the world, vengeance and violence and greed over and against God's wisdom because it felt better to the sinfulness of their hearts and flesh. And so, remember, when when disaster fell on the people of Judah, when the Babylonians came, verse 11 says, Edom stood aloof. They could have cared less is what that word means. They were smug and selfish and uncompassionate and hard-hearted and they stood there like bystanders just sort of rubbing their hands in glee watching in amusement as God's own people were plundered and ravaged and destroyed. They didn't care. They did nothing to help. They didn't want to because they were full of self-righteous hatred. They had no mercy. They had no compassion. They rejoiced to see other people suffer and brutalized if it would benefit themselves. Verses 12 through 14, just, just this running list of of the cold and unmerciful and heartless bloodlust and sin that ignited the just judgments of God against the Edomites. They boasted and gloated over the misfortunes of others. They had no humility or compassion. They rejoiced over their brother's suffering. They had no mercy. They took advantage of Judah's suffering. They walked in and plundered Jerusalem. They profited from their brother's suffering and calamity. They joined in the slaughter even, verse 14 says. They waited at the crossroads to grab any survivors who were trying to flee and they cut them down and handed them over to the Babylonians. And for all of that merciless, heartless, arrogant injustice, the wrath of God was justly kindled against Edom 
And that's a good thing. Praise be to God, who is the righteous judge of the whole earth, that he will not overlook all of the evil and wickedness that pours out of the prideful hearts of wicked men and nations in this world ever, even now. He sees all of the injustice, and he cares, and he will vindicate it all. Right? Every abused woman and child, every trafficked human, every murdered person, every aborted infant, every persecuted, martyred saint of God, every war-torn nation, every exploited and starved and oppressed population vindicated. Every proud perpetrator of injustice and wickedness and evil, every proud purveyor of destructive, godless, perverse immorality and debauchery will be justly judged. Every wrong will be made right. That day is coming. That's verse 15, which we'll dig into more deeply next week. It's clear, it's unambiguous, it's terrifying for all who do not know the Lord. The day of the Lord is near, not just for Edom, but on all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. The scales will be balanced. The wrongs will be righted. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Every punishment will fit every crime. That day came for Edom, in spite of all their pride and self-assurance. They were torn down by the righteous hand of the Almighty. The world should tremble. America should tremble. Every person everywhere who thinks that they don't need God should tremble before the holy judge of the whole earth because he's coming. He's coming. And of course, the beautiful truth about our God is this, that every day until he comes in judgment is a day of his patience, Peter says. It's a day of his merciful restraint. It's a day of his unmerited favor where he is calling sinful people to come to him and be saved from the wrath of God that is coming, that they might not endure it forever. Every day until Jesus comes is a day of salvation, where He graciously calls sinful people to turn from their prideful idolatry and rejection of Him and suppression of His truth, and come to Him and be forgiven. And we say, well, if all of the sinners that did all of that stuff, sort of like Jonah we get in our hearts, right? The Assyrians had done all these horrible things to the Israelites and God says, go preach the gospel basically to the Assyrians and all of them repented and Jonah goes, what's up with that? How come they don't have to pay for what they did to us? Right? What about, what about justice for the sinners if they get forgiven by God? That's just it? No justice for their crimes? Of course there's justice for their crimes if they're forgiven because Jesus paid it all. Jesus bore the righteous wrath of God against all of us sinners in His own body on the cross. The full measure of God's righteous judgment came upon Him so that anyone who will turn from their sin and come to Him in faith won't have to bear that punishment on themselves. Because Jesus, the Son of God who is God the Son, He's the one who wasn't proud, right? He humbled Himself in order to save prideful sinners. 
He poured himself out. He sacrificed it all. He died for his enemies instead of destroying us. He emptied himself. He became destroyed in our place so that we could have everlasting life. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the one who vanquished the greatest enemy, which is death itself. He destroyed that enemy by by dying on the cross for us. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the resurrection. He is the life. He is the fullness of the wisdom and revelation of God in all of His divine holiness and justice and mercy and love and humility. All of that is revealed in Jesus. No one comes to the Father but through Him. He's coming and with Him justice, final, full justice. And until then, there's time to plead with the world to come to Jesus. Remember from the book of Revelation, the Spirit and the bride say, come. You're the bride of Christ. I'm the bride of Christ. We just say, we say, come to Jesus. And we go, well, nobody comes when I say come. But it's not just you saying it, remember? The Spirit and the bride say, come. Whenever you preach the gospel, the Holy Spirit is also preaching the gospel. And anyone that he wants to come is going to come. So preach and call people to turn from their sins and come to Jesus who bore the justice of God for them. Otherwise, for eternity, they will bear it upon them themselves. Jesus paid it all. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is our rock. Jesus is our shelter. Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is our rest. Amen? Let's pray, and then let's sing to Him. Our God and our Father, we're grateful for what You reveal in Your Word because it's not anything that we would ever conceive of. It's not anything that we would ever desire to even conceive of. But Father, Your Word and Your truth transcends us and transcends all. And we thank You for showing us the goodness of Your justice. And we thank You, Father, so much for the reality that all of the justice and wrath of God against our sin was poured out in your great mercy upon your only begotten Son. As we prepare to come to this table now and celebrate that by tasting of the bread and the cup and remembering all that Jesus did for us, would you make us grateful? Would you make us holy? Would you make us strong? And Father, would you make us bright lights in the darkness of this world, faithful to call people to come while there's time. May we redeem the time that you've given us, as Paul says, because these days are evil. Oh, Father, glorify yourself in your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.